How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Well, I always learn from you and from Sahan, so it's it's great being colleagues with you. And uh, and uh, maybe we can maybe if your investments do well, maybe maybe I can afford a uh, you can send some money over my way for a hair transplant. All right. All right. Uh, low fees is just low fee. Now, if you compound the low fees over years, obviously you're probably going to do a a better return than if you had the exact same product but sitting inside a mutual fund. But buying a ETF or buying an index or following the market is just that you're following the market. You do not beat the market. One may argue that most people don't beat the market. That's fair. That's a fair argument. If you all you have to do is look at Spiva. I'm not as worried about the ups and downs in the market in the short term. Uh, my philosophy is that I think that capital markets and stock markets in general, over time, will perform well and give a good rate of return. What's the difference between interactive broker, which is all do it yourself completely, versus a robo advisor? Because there are some differences there. Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the show. How is my financial health doc podcast? And I am your host, Vuketran. And I am so happy to be here with you guys today because I've got two of my favorite friends on my show today. I've got Sahan and I've got Peter. So today we're going to be talking about a very important topic, which is how to invest, but not really so much about how to invest is talking about the type of investments uh, tactics that we will use. So we're going to talk about DIY, so do it yourself. And we're going to talk about a little bit about managed uh, portfolio, how we tend to invest when we have a portfolio manager. And we're going to talk about the pros and cons of both. So first of all, I want to introduce my friends to the show. Uh, Sahan, good morning. Good morning, Vu. Hey, good morning. So Sahan, we've known each other for a long, long time, but the audience do not know who you are. So how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm Sahan. I uh, am an emergency medicine PA or physician assistant uh, working in Toronto. I've had the pleasure of working with Dr. Tran here for, I would say, almost eight years now. It's crazy. And uh, as well as my emergency medicine gig, I'm pretty actively involved in, in teaching and kind of PA leadership type uh, stuff over the last few years. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. And uh, why all of a sudden, Dr. Tran, you, you call me, hey, bud, in the merge. Why do you all of a sudden call me Dr. Tran? Oh, you know, I like to mix it up a little bit from time to time. Uh, always keep, keep me fresh. on my toes. Keep fresh. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so my other guest with us today is Peter. Peter, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, Vu. Hey, Sahan. Good to, good to speak to you guys today. Um, I am uh, an emergency physician. Uh, as, you, as you know, Vu, we've been working together for, I'm not going to date ourselves, but perhaps I will for the better part of 20 years, I'd say. 
Yeah, so I practice emergency medicine and I have certainly an interest in personal finance and investing. And I studied uh, my undergrad degree, I studied finance. Uh, So looking forward to the show today. Wonderful, wonderful. So thank you guys for coming on the show so early on a Sunday morning. So I really want to have this discussion on DIY and managed investment. So how about we start with you, uh, Sahan, because, you know, in speaking with you, I have the impression and I may be wrong, but I have the impression that, you know, since you started working and since you started investing or saving, depending on what you do, you've been doing it about a lot of it on your own. So tell us a little bit about your journey in terms of how you save or invest with uh, the funds that you you have. Yeah, so um, you're right, Boo. Uh, really early on in my career, you know, I was living at home. I uh, was trying to save up, pay off my student loans. Uh, and as I started to accumulate a little bit of uh, wealth, I thought, you know, I don't want this to just sit in my bank account. So the first thing I did is I went to the bank and uh, I spoke with a financial advisor who said, you know, you should be putting your money into these funds. And pretty much after two or three years of doing that, I realized I wasn't really getting a lot of bang for my buck. And speaking with some colleagues and friends and family members who did a lot of DIY type investing and and kind of around that time when robo-investors and things were, were coming into the market, I started to take more interest in both just investing on my own in terms of having my own kind of stock portfolio that I would invest in and manage on my own, uh, but also uh, managing my, my funds in a uh, robo-advisor. So I started off with uh, Questrade uh, and I invested a little bit with Questrade. And over time, I also started to invest with Wealthsimple as well. And now I've switched a lot of my portfolio from uh, Quest Trade into Interactive Brokers just because of the fee-based uh, kind of trading. The, the fees from Interactive were a lot lower than Quest Trade. I was paying almost ten dollars, uh, you know, for a buy or and sell order uh, on a on a trade through Quest Trade, whereas Interactive was a fraction of that. So I'm trying to switch over to Interactive for the stocks that I'm managing, and I prefer Wealth Simple. Uh, for the robo-advisor, I find it's just an easy way to put my money into an account month to month and not have to worry about managing that fund. Uh, it's a little bit more reliable. And I think for me, Wealthsimple is the less risky kind of trading. that. I- so let me uh, come back to that a little bit about the robo-advisor versus IB. So in IB, you decide everything. You buy, you sell. Whereas with robo-advisor there's something else that you do that obviously they provide value. Um, And so we'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. So please remind me what's the difference between interactive broker, which is all do it yourself completely versus a robo advisor, because there are some differences there. Uh, Peter, tell us about a little bit about how you do it. Okay. So, so uh, thanks. So largely I've been a, a buy and hold investor and I generally uh, invest in uh specific stocks, specific equities, and grown the number of equities over time so that by now, I've been doing this for a while, I have a fairly balanced portfolio of perhaps, you know, 40 to 50 uh, stocks that uh, that I mostly buy and hold. Um, I also, and that's probably accounts for, let's call it, that probably accounts for about 90% of my portfolio. Of that 90%, I probably do about 60% myself and 30% with a, um, a fee-based advisor. 
So I get some advice. Uh, and then another 10%, I invest with a, a discretionary fund manager that does things just very different from what I do or, or, or what I understand. So, so it's a little bit of diversification in the way they invest there. So that's about it. So I do about 60% of my portfolio is buy and hold myself. Okay, very good. So Peter represents the the hybrid of, of the type of investing. So Peter has the DIY portion, but he also has that uh, portion that is managed by someone else. Now you mentioned the word fee-based. Uh, can you just describe what that means in practice, uh, Peter? It's not fee. I pay a transaction fee per transaction with my with my um, advisor, with my like I said, uh, one of the finance, one of the large banks. Uh, so I pay transaction fee. The other investment, the uh, the ten percent discretionary fund manager, that is fee based. So I pay a I pay a fee of let's say two percent on on that. Um, uh, whereas the transactions-based advisor, I pay uh, certainly much more than uh, you would pay, let's say, a $10 uh, uh, stock transaction. You're paying more because you're paying your, for the advice that, that they're giving you. So it's a more expensive transactions-based uh, advice. So those are the three different things that I have. Okay. So uh, just coming back to the one with the bank where you're paying a transaction, it's it's not like uh, Quest Trade or Wealth Simple. You pay a certain fee, but it's more than ten dollars, and you do get some advice. Is it similar to, let's say, what Sahan is doing with Robo Advisor, or it's a little bit more sophisticated than that? No, it's 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 very different. I mean, I think Robo Advisor is very elegant. I think it's it's a great tool for a lot of people, but it's very different. So some of the benefits is that. In the long run, whether I do it DYI, buy and hold or through my advisor, in the long run, I, I pick a stock, I invest a certain amount in it, and I have and I have initial transaction fee, whether it's $10 or whether it's more with the fee-based advisor, that's the only thing I pay for the lifetime of my hold on that stock. I'm not paying an MER to a mutual fund, and I'm not paying an MER to, uh, to uh, even like a Wellsimple or a, or a robo-advisor. So, so in the long run, I think it's, it's amongst the cheapest ways to, to, um, to manage your portfolio. I think the fees, especially if you do a DYI spending 6 or $10 a transaction, over the long run, the fees are, are minimal, especially as your portfolio grows. It's a, it's a small, small fraction. I mean, you know, perhaps on my DY portfolio, I'm spending, you know, certainly less than, than you know, much less than one-tenth of a percent on, on fees uh, uh, annually. Um, so much less than 10 basis points. It's probably, I'm sure, less than five basis points. That's the, one of the advantages. It's that it's inexpensive over the long run. I do sell from time to time. So, and and there are other cons about it. We could talk about that later. My strategy is mostly investing in um, uh, mostly larger cap, uh, relatively stable companies. And I can tell you about my asset allocation down the road if we want to go there. Okay. So I just want to circle back to the um, discretionary portfolio manager. You said 2%. So I just want the audience to be clear. This is 2% of asset under management. Is that correct, Peter? That's correct. And I think actually in addition to that, I probably pay 
20% when they outperform the index um, of 20% of profits when they outperform the index. So let's say they have a banner year and they, then they do 50% growth and the index does 30% growth. I'm just, these are crazy numbers. So the difference is 20%. So you might pay, you know, you might pay a percentage of those profits back to so 20% of those profits. So let's say on 20%, that would be uh, 4%, uh, you would pay 4% additional fees in like a banner year like that. Right. Okay? So, so, so it's called two plus 20. Right. So it's a pay for performance. Correct. Right. So, and you, and you hope that they beat the market. That's obviously, the intent. Obviously. Their, obviously. their incentive is to beat the market, right? That's how they're aligned. Right. Okay. So Peter has a hybrid of DIY, a transaction based only, and also a asset under management uh, fee-based type of investment. So myself, I am a, well, before I talk about myself, I just want to make sure that the audience understand among the three of us, Peter is the most knowledgeable of, of all investors because Peter has a degree in finance. He's been doing this for many, many years. So please, if you're a novice uh, beginner out there, uh, please don't think that this is going to be done easily and overnight because like they all type of disclaimers on TV, please let the professionals do it. Uh, Don't do this at home. You may get injured. So I just want to say that, you know, Peter is a very sophisticated investor. And so what he's doing works for him. But if you're starting off like myself or you're starting off like Sahan or, you know, you're a new grad, this is definitely something that needs to be uh, learned over time. So I just wanted to say that so that people don't get the wrong message that, you know, I could do this tomorrow. As but, well, well, I just want, I, can I, I want to agree and disagree with you. Okay. Yeah. So go I'm going to agree, agree with you in that, in that I agree, this is not something that most people should do. I wouldn't recommend it. And we, we, we're going to talk about a lot of the cons of the way I do things, which I don't think is a good idea for most investors. Uh, so I agree with you there. Um, I will disagree with you in that I'm not the most knowledgeable investor here. I'm just the oldest. And because I'm the oldest, I have a little bit more experience. Okay. So to that point, um, not only are you oldest, but you are the one that lost the most hair so far. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's what happens when you manage your own finances, amongst <laughs> other things. Okay. So a little bit about how I do it. Uh, I'm very much like Peter, except for the, actually, I'm very much like Peter. I do DIY, I would say maybe not 60%. I would say maybe 40, 50% I do DIY. So I have my own, believe it or not, several direct investment account. To be honest, I'm not sure how I ended up that way. It's probably stupid, but I've got three a direct investment account. So one with Scotia Bank, one with National Bank, one with TD Bank. And for some reason, I didn't go to Hong Kong Bank, maybe because they didn't have one, but I shouldn't be doing that. I should be consolidating. That's the first point I think I realized just now. But I do a lot of the direct direct investment account. Two, I do the managed portfolio, uh, discretionary managed portfolio. So uh, I have an account or I will have an account with a portfolio manager who will, you know, do whatever they want to do. And I just sit and watch them do it. And uh, hopefully they'll beat the market and beat the, beat the index. 
And the third one, which is a significant portion of my assets are with a managed portfolio that, you know, most of us physicians know about. I won't say the name of this company, uh, but within this company, I also get to choose a little bit, you know, maybe not more than a little bit, more than a little bit. I get to choose what I want to invest in, invest in and obviously with their recommendations, suggestion and advice. So very similar to Peter, I think that's how my mix uh, of investments are. Definitely, there are many ways of doing this. Let's circle back and look at the DIY. For those of us who actually do DIY, maybe tell us a little bit what the allocation mix is or what are the type of things one tend to invest in. So uh, we'll, we'll start with Peter because Peter, you mentioned it earlier. You do a lot of large caps. What else do you do? So that's that's a great question. I think the asset allocation, whatever you decide, is probably uh, you know amongst the most important decisions, and as well as rebalancing, those are probably the two most important decisions you can make. And how you do it is much less important than 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 having that approach. You know, again, all this boils down to risk and reward, right? Any any investment is. It will have risk and reward, and um, I'm a long-term I'm a long-term investor. I'm not as worried about the ups and downs in the market in the short term. Uh, my philosophy is that I think the capital markets and stock markets in general, over time, will perform well and give a good rate of return. Not so. I'm I'm more focused, a little bit more focused on growth. Like 25% of my portfolio is let's say in the FANG type stocks, that stands for F-A-A-N-G, that's uh, the, the large, the mega uh, mega cap tech stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft. Uh, so that's probably 25% of my portfolio. Another 25% of my portfolio approximately is the Canadian banking industry, mostly the large Canadian banks and a couple of insurance companies. Probably another 10% of my portfolio is U.S. financials. So I'm heavily weighted to financials and mega cap tech. And then everything else is, uh, I guess, about 40%. So I'm heavily weighted there. And that's a choice I've made. It's not the right choice or the wrong choice. It's just a choice that I've made. That might change and I might alter that a little bit. But so far, I think that's a reasonable place for me to be. And in terms of bonds and, and fixed income, Right now, I hold very, very little in bonds or fixed income. I do choose to keep my 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 fixed income money in cash uh, mostly, and I think it's always important to have a certain cash position or be able to access cash. It, you know, when when the conditions arise, like the market correction we had uh, uh, last year in March of 2020. So I think it's always that's a prudent thing to always have. How much cash you should have, I mean, is is a big question. I mean, if you're a long-term investor and you're not worried about the short-term variations, many would argue that having very little cash in the portfolio, you know, zero, uh, you know, between zero and five percent, up to ten percent, uh, might be a good strategy in terms of because in the long run, the equity markets will always outperform. Like, a, a, let's say, a hundred percent equity market in the long run will always outperform an 80-20 or a 50-50 uh, stocks and bonds uh, portfolio in, in the long run, uh, typically. But in the short run, I think it's great to have that a little bit of a diversification. 
so I, I might have like, let's say five to 10% in cash. I try, I should be closer to 10% right now. I'm 5% and I'm probably going to fix that in the next little while. Um, and that's the bulk of my investment. I don't have any private equity and I don't have a lot of insurance products. That's where I'm at and mostly buy and hold. Okay. So I want to talk about a few things, if you don't mind, just very quickly. So first of all, you mentioned the word my, me, uh, that's how I do it. And that's very important what you said there, because investing is very personal. Like I don't invest like you, Sahan don't invest like you. I don't invest like the other people in the world. So it's very personal. So I, that point I think needs to be made. But the second question I want to ask is, and again, I don't want to know the specifics, but in broad category, you know, what are the different factors that you have taken to say, this is how I want to invest this type of mix, this type of cash. And I don't need to know specifically you, what, what factors or what factors you chose to, to, but what are the different factors that one will choose or will make or take into account when they are looking at their asset mix? What do you think those will be? Age, time horizon, risk capacity, sure. what, what is it that you have used or that yeah, so people I can use? I think though that's that's an excellent question you asked, and it really depends on someone's time and stage of life. Like if you're starting out and your goal is um, I want to buy a house and I want to come up with a certain amount, let's say two hundred thousand dollars for a down payment uh, in within two to three years, your risk tolerance will be vastly different from someone who is let's say middle aged, um, has their house, mortgage is mostly paid off or paid off. And they're, you know, and are saving for for retirement, for for example, uh, but still have another 10, 15, 20 years to work. So those those are totally different things. And I think early on in life, if you have a goal in mind, a purchase in mind, you need to save for that goal. And you need to put those that amount of savings in relatively uh, less risky investments. So you may have a bigger cash position early on. Once you've you know, gotten your your expenses that you need out of the way. I think at that point, if you have a long time horizon, my my belief, I think for most people, if you don't need, if you have your emergency fund and you've you have your mortgage fund and your cash flows in your family situation are positive, then I think having most of your portfolio in equities in the long run is a way to best uh, optimize return with, I think, an acceptable level of risk. So I think it very much depends on your time horizon, your age, you know, what your cash flow situation is, and it will be vastly different for everyone. Thank you, Peter. So Sahan, tell us a little bit how you allocated your funds in your investment. And again, what are the different factors you have used to make those type of decisions? Uh, I think this has been a great conversation and uh, you both alluded to kind of my thought process because I, I consider myself very, very early and immature and probably uh, you know not super knowledgeable, nearly at least not nearly as knowledgeable as you guys when it comes to investing. So I'm still trying to you know get a hold of, of investing still early on in my career. My trajectory, I guess I'll answer your second question first, which is, when I first started, I was definitely much more risk tolerant uh, and investing to me outside of the mutual funds and other things that I'd invested in was more so just trying to learn how to invest. So I'd allocated, you know, a small lump sum of money, you know, 5% of some of the money that I was saving to 
stocks to kind of learn how to actually even invest in stocks and to do it myself. Early on, I realized that I really didn't have the knowledge to make sound investment decisions. So I, you know, started reading up on investing. I grabbed some of these, you know, common, uh, you know, books around how to invest in stocks, how to invest in the markets. And uh, unfortunately, I think I've told you this story before, Vu, after I lost a decent amount of money uh, in the, you know, marijuana craze, the, the marijuana stock boom that was happening. And I thought, you know, this is my chance to try to learn and, and jump in on something and, and make some money. Uh, I started to shift my focus from investing into smaller cap stocks to more like yourself and Peter investing in large cap stocks through interactive brokers and trying to hold it more so for the long term. Uh, so right now, you know, my portfolio with Interactive has really shifted more towards the technology side. So I have about 50% of my uh, holdings in tech, uh, and that similar to Peter is in, in the FANG uh, M stocks. Uh, I have about, you know, 13% in telecommunications, 13% uh, in consumer cyclicals. I have uh, about 6% in uh, financials sector, I have uh, about 5% in cash. So those are the majority of my holdings in, in my interactive account. Um, I still do dabble a little bit in smaller cap stocks, but I, I really honestly look at that as gambling. And that's more just for fun for me that I have a bit of playing money. You know, if you think that maybe there's an interesting opportunity uh, and you realize that you can totally lose all of that money. I still will dabble a little bit, but my long-term goal has been to shift my allocations into larger cap, more stable stocks, uh, and to continue to supplement those stocks over time. And similar to Peter, that kind of buy and hold strategy with stocks that are reliable and are gonna recover whenever there's, you know, um, whenever the market flips and after you see the downtrends in the market, I can hold on to them and they'll eventually recover. So that's my strategy with my interactive brokers and my stocks. Uh, in terms of Wealth Simple, that really for me is just my account that I'm putting money in regularly. I'm not touching it. It's all buy and hold. Uh, I invested into a TFSA uh, and it's more of a balanced portfolio. So it, it's not nearly uh, as risky as, as the other trading that I've done. Um, in terms of the, the allocation, it's about 50% equity uh, and 50% fixed income and gold. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I have 10% in the equity market. I have 10% in global equities, 10% in U.S. equities, 10% in international equities, and about 5% in connect Canadian equities and 15% in emerging market equities. Uh, and then the remainder is in fixed income and gold, about, uh, you know, a half a percent is in cash of that, 4% is in gold, uh, 15 in company bonds, and then 30 in government bonds. I think there's something you said that I, I would like to maybe just dwell on. So your Wealth Simple account is your TFSA account. That's where you uh, save in your TFSA. You've chosen to go balanced and you've chosen to take some risk, but also have some security in bonds my opinion and my view of a TFSA is to go as risky as you can tolerate. Uh, the reason I say that is because a TFSA, you pay, it's post-taxed, 
you pay your tax and then whatever money you have left, you invest in a TFSA and whatever is invested and grows into that account, when you take it out, it will not be taxed. And so for, for that perspective, most people who will advise will say in your TFSA, you actually put and say and invest in the most risky thing you can tolerate as opposed to a more balanced account. You do that with an RSP account, but with TFSA, you tend to be at the highest of your risk tolerance because whatever you make and how fast it grows, everything comes out tax-free at the end. So that's where you should sort of gamble and play with your money. So that's the that's the mindset of most people when they talk about TFSA. Peter, can I can I can, yeah. can I yeah can I just add a comment to that, Vu? Yeah. So I so you're talking about asset location. Right? We're talking about asset allocation, you know, equities, bonds, gold, private equity, which is an important discussion. Now you're talking about asset location, where we put our assets. So do we put in TFSA, a non-registered investment account, an RSP, right? So there's a lot of debate about asset location. I agree and disagree with you about that. You're right. There is an advantage to having capital gains uh, not dividend gains, but capital gains in your TFSA. So perhaps you might want to choose companies that, that you project will have capital gains and minimal dividends. So like, you know, an example of that is a company like Google. Google would be a good stock to perhaps own in your TFSA. They're never going to pay a dividend. Uh, and hopefully over the long run, they'll have uh, long capital gains. So you're talking about other risky stocks too. But risky stocks, the only thing I'm going to say is, you know, we do, there is this hypothesis out there about that, but risky stock don't always mean uh, better returns. Okay. So really, you know, asset location is, you know, I always stress asset location, but it's, it actually adds probably less than 30 basis points to your total return if you optimize your asset location. So I think it's probably better just to see your overall portfolio. And yes, if you have a choice, Stocks that you think are going to have longer capital gains over the long run should be in your TFSA. In your RSP should be um, more U.S. dividend-paying stocks because if you're going to have U.S. dividend-paying stocks, you want to put them in RSP because you don't pay you don't pay the 15% withholding tax. And then in your Canadian non-registered account, you may want to have that's where you put most of your Canadian dividend stocks. But I think. All that might get you 30, 40 basis points a year, if that, if that, if you do that perfectly. So much better to have, to know your full asset allocation and don't overweight something unintentionally because you're piling up on a certain asset location. So that's the only thing I would say, but I, I agree with your, your comments. Yeah, no, I, I agree with your comments as well, but I wasn't really driving to those points uh but those are good points to make what what i really just wanted to talk about was the philosophy between rsp and tfsa to do the two different accounts and what most people tend to recommend for a tfsa is to be a little bit on the higher risk uh echelon because of the growth is tax-free totally tax-free when you take it out because it has already been taxed up front Um, but so, but the Great. other thing that I wanted to talk about that nobody has talked about, which is, I, I think it's a point that must be made. 
none of us have talked about mutual funds. Okay, so we have all invested in stocks, we have invested in ETFs, and some bonds and some gold, but none of us have invested in mutual funds. And the reason I want to bring this up is because in the DIY era, we are in the DIY era, as you can see, we've, you know, come up with several names, IB, Wealthsimple, Wealthbar, Questrade, blah, blah, blah. All these are DIY and the move, the DIY movement is to move away from fees. And so none of us have mutual funds. And I definitely do not have any more mutual funds. And Peter, you never mentioned it. And Sahan, you didn't. And the reason for that is because of the MERs, the high fees that are embedded within these mutual funds. So I want the audience to understand that, you know, people who go into DIY typically will not invest in mutual funds. What they will tend to invest are in index funds or ETFs. And now ETFs, are you know very similar to index funds and you can trade them like stocks so most people are now you know uh indexed into the market via etfs which are very very cost efficient so i just wanted to bring that point up uh, any comments about that guys I, I think i briefly mentioned it but i i initially started with mutual funds so when i when i went to the bank uh and i had absolutely no idea what i was doing now i Still don't have any idea what I'm doing, I feel like, but I'm, I'm learning. Uh, but at that point, when I went to the bank, it was just, you know, I'm listening to whatever the advisor's telling me. And they said, mutual funds, this is the way to go. Uh, invest your money in mutual funds. I put a large amount of money in funds, but I was getting, I don't know, probably one to 2%. Uh, and I was like, this is crazy. Like, I feel like this, there's a better way. There's a better way to do this. And, and with research, I realized, yeah, that the fees of the mutual funds uh, that I was being charged were were quite high, and then that's when I started to uh, kind of rejig the location of uh, where I was keeping the money. Yeah, I, th I think I, th I think I think you learned a lot there, Sahand, and you you made you made a wise decision for yourself in the long run. I think it's the whole concept of passive versus active investing, and we should probably touch on that now. Um, active investing is what a mutual fund does. It's you have a mutual fund manager that that. Picks stocks, you know, is a stock picker and and tries to beat the market. Uh, passive investing is the the art of investing in the market itself. So you're investing in ETFs that actually are the market, whether it's the emerging market. It's you can you know drill down and say I want to invest in some kind of ETF that does industrials or emerging market small caps. But the point is you're you're choosing a market, and you can even now choose. A single ETF that covers the entire world, you know, a percentage in Canada, 40% US, you know, 7% emerging markets, you know, uh, EFI, you know, 30%, and you cover the entire world with one mutual fund. And that's not a bad choice for some people. Vanguard has one, iShares has one. The, the amount that ETFs have involved, have evolved over the last let's say 20 years is astronomical. And that has led to the one, the, the decline of the mutual fund industry and the reduction in fees in the mutual fund industry because they know they have to compete. So the question, the big question is, which is better? Active management, either through a mutual fund or, or other or, or passive investing. And, and, and the greatest sort of example is this is, is Warren Buffett um, I had a bet with a, uh, a hedge fund company, Prestige Hedge Fund, I believe it's called, in 2007 about who can outperform each, each other. Uh, and Warren Buffett decided to just invest in the S&P. 
in an index fund of the S&P. And uh, the hedge fund did what they did. And, and it was a million dollar bet. Warren Buffett came out way ahead after 10 years. I think he had 2.2 million more in assets than they did after, after 10 years. And, and, and they paid up. And in fact, in his estate, he, he has said in his estate, I want my estate to hold low cost ETFs. This is the, maybe the greatest financial fund manager of all time. And, and that's what he wants to do because he believes that investing in the market in a passive way uh, is a way to, to maximize returns, have good returns and minimize costs. Um, so I think the emergence of ETFs in every way, shape and form has really leveled the playing field. And that's what we see with these, with some of the robo-advisors that I think are excellent products, some of them, like, like what Sahan does at Simple or, or Questrade or some of the others, as you mentioned. I think they are excellent products. And the beauty of them is that you don't have to spend any time at all except setting it up. You can set up, as Sahan does, probably some automatic monthly uh, uh, deposits into the account. Uh, and off you go. And you can spend your time, you know, playing uh, volleyball or basketball or listening to music or, uh, you know, watching Netflix, Disney Plus and whatever other services you watch. So so that is the beauty of it, that it gives you your time back and you don't have to spend a lot of time doing this and you will have market-based long-term returns and you will do well in the long run. So what you've mentioned there essentially is the philosophy of DIY is, you know, choose a passive fund, uh, ETF, uh, investment follow the market, go up and down with the market, but over the long run, you'll do okay. So that's really the the uh, philosophy behind DIY. I just want to reiterate uh, Peter's point there, because I think for the younger generation, that's kind of what I've, what drew me into the wealth simple idea was that idea of time. I think where I got, where I still run into problems when I'm managing my own funds and my own stocks is when the when there are market downturns, right? And when you see your stocks plummeting, having that emotional connection to the stocks that you've invested in is is the most challenging part of managing your own portfolio. And I think the beauty of just you know having an account like Wealth Simple, where you're where you have zero you know connection to any of the investments other than the way that it's been allocated. Uh, and you just month to month are dumping money into that account. And regardless whether there's uptrends or downtrends in the market, you're just continuing to invest. That is the beauty of it. Uh, and that's where you see the most growth. Whereas, you know, in, in my own account in, in Interactive, the one that I'm managing, I find, you know, as soon as there's a, there's a downtrend, I start to get antsy, you know, do I sell? No, I know I should hold, I shouldn't sell. You know, do I buy more? What if it goes lower? Maybe I shouldn't buy more. And then that ends up in the long term, I think, causing you to miss opportunities where you could have invested your money. Uh, and I think that Wealth Simple gets rid of that emotional factor uh, that I think for a lot of us uh, ends up in, in, in us making mistakes when it comes to our investing. So can, can, I, can I add something, Vu? Yeah, of course, go ahead. So I, I think Sahan made, made a brilliant point. I think, I think the reason why retail individual investors don't do well managing their own assets on their own is exactly that, emotional investing, okay? And, and um, I mean, this is probably one of the most important concepts. Really, to make money, you have to do two things. You have to buy low and sell high. But when, mar- when there's a market downturn, 
And that's all you have to do. It's as simple as that. There's nothing more to it than that. But when there's a market downturn, you know, and we see our portfolio going down, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40%, it's like, okay, this is enough. 40%, I got to get out. I got to get out. When is this going to stop, right? And that's the worst possible thing you, you you can do. But we all we all do it. We all succumb to those uh, to those normal emotional uh, pressures. Now, I mean, there's they've done studies on this, and they showed that you know when you like it, it's you know it's counterintuitive. But when you lose money, when you lose whatever amount of dollars, you lose a thousand dollars, you make a thousand dollars. The emotional negative hit that you take when you lose a thousand dollars in the market is twice as great as the emotional benefit you have when you make $1,000 in the market. So if you have this increased emotional tool telling you, you know, I can't take this and I can't stomach this anymore, I have to sell at the very moment where you should be buying, right? Then, you know, it's very hard to get market returns. So when you do it yourself, you're generally going to get below market returns. And one of the main causes is emotional investing. The other issue that, that Sahan mentions, I think we briefly touched on that, is the rebalancing that you get with robo-advisors. So again, here I am, I'm a DIY investor, buy and hold on my own. But I'm saying for most people, I think the rebalancing and the lack of emotional investing, I think for a lot of people, the robo-advisor way is a brilliant way to go. Thank you, Peter, for that. I just want to point people to my episode on rebalancing. That's why I did that episode, so that all the people who are investing, whether you are DIY or not, you should be thinking about that. So I want to come back to this point, Sahan, because I mentioned it earlier. There's a difference between IB and uh, Wealthsimple and Questrade. And you know it seemed very obvious to us because we're talking about it, but the audience may not know. So what is it that about these robo-advisors that they do that IB doesn't do? Because IB is just a trading platform for you to trade. But robo-advisor actually gives you something more. So what is that something more that you said, you know, I'm, I'm removed from the market. I, I invest my stuff with this platform, Simple uh, Wealth Simple, And there's something that they do that I'm not putting my emotions into it. So what are those things that they actually do? So, I mean, you know, the, the robo-advisor it essentially is is managing your your funds for you so so when you sign up with a platform like wealth simple i mean interactive brokers quest trade these other platforms also usually have an option to you know have your funds managed and to have someone look over your portfolio but they charge extra fees for that um an account like wealth simple although wealth simple also now has wealth simple trade so you can also trade on wealth simple yourself if you wanted to um, the idea is you sign up, uh, you go onto their website, they ask you a bunch of questions to kind of gauge your risk tolerance and your long-term and short-term plans. Uh, and then it essentially allocates your funds for you. So the, the robo-advisor will make decisions on where to put your money based on your preferences uh, and your risk tolerance. And then once you go through that, uh, you essentially, if you could, you could do, you know, monthly uh, deposits uh, at your own will, or you can set up uh, a way of having um, uh, essentially uh, monthly uh, withdrawals from your account every month. You know, for me, I, I set a certain limit to be withdrawn from my bank account and put into my Wealth Simple account, and that will get allocated uh, based on the preferences that you've chosen in advance. Uh, so really, from my end, the only thing that's happening is the money's leaving my account and going into my Wealth Simple account, 
and the robo-advisors doing the rest of the work. Uh, the, the only real work from the investor's end is, is that first stage of signing up where uh, you answer you know, all of those different questions to determine how your portfolio and your money should be allocated in the market. And so does, does the robo-advisor also rebalance for you? Yeah, so I mean, I, I mean, I can I can add to that, but yeah, robo advisors uh, definitely rebalance. Like you probably either chose, I think you mentioned you chose a balanced kind of fund where you were approximately 50-50 between fixed income, uh, uh, equities, fixed income, and a bit of gold. Uh, yeah. So, so that's their mandate. They sort of they have to rebalance, and when the stock market does, let's say, really well, let's say over the last year or so, they're going to sell some stocks, so they're selling high to allocate more towards bonds and gold. They do that within the fund. They don't tell you about it, it's just automatic. And they do, I don't know how often they do that, whether it's monthly or quarterly, but they have some kind of rebalancing because their mandate is they have to maintain that balance. And that's the beauty of, of automatic rebalancing, right? Again, automatic rebalancing, if you're automatic rebalancing in, in March of 2020, you would do the exact correct thing. You would be, your, your stocks have gone down, your fixed income has gone up. So the, the robo-advisor or on your own, you would take some fixed income and buy some equities after they're down 20, 30, 35%. So you would do the actual right thing. Again, you're buying low you know, and selling your bonds high because they've done well and, and, and buying the stocks low. So that's the beauty about rebalancing, especially in volatile markets. Um, so yeah, that is what they do. Yeah, no, it's it's just a comment. I'm just I just logged onto my account, and I mean they do they have a very clear disclaimer here, which you know beautifully summarizes everything that Peter's and, and you've mentioned, Boo. Which is again, when you go into the account and and you look at the the holdings, uh, they just say again, this represents your cor- current portfolio holdings. The equity and fixed income split will draft away from your target mix due to market fluctuations, but will automatically rebalance your portfolio as needed. So I, I guess my question is, Sahan, I don't want to put you on the spot, but do you know approximately what fees you pay for Wealth Simple? Do you understand the fee structure? I don't know the exact number, Peter, to be honest with you. I could easily find it probably in the next two minutes, but I want to say it's quite low, like less than a percent for sure. Yeah, so it, so it is it is less than like I was looking up some of the robo advisors just just before we got on today, and uh, and I think the average MER on the on the ETFs you hold is about zero point two percent. They they say approximately, and then Wealth Simple charges approximately 05 percent annually. So the total MER you pay is 0.7, uh, is is you know point seven percent, which I think is very reasonable, and you're getting. You know, again, in life, you get what you pay for in general, in general. Sometimes you overpay for things you don't need, aka some some mutual funds, but I think you get what you pay for. And for that 0.7%, you are getting quite a bit. You're getting the automatic rebalancing, the ETFs, and you're getting your time, right? So I think that's a very reasonable, lower cost, you know, way to do it, uh, much less than the one and a half to two, 2% you get with an active manager. Uh, so so there are some costs there, uh, but I think those are well, well worth it and very reasonable costs um, compared to, you know, mutual funds and active managers for sure. 
So I think this is a great segue to go into the pros of DIY, at least the way that Sahan has been doing. So he's been doing a little bit of you know, self-investing with IB and also a bit of robo-advisor. So both of which are DIY. So Sahan, you know, after all these years of playing around with this, what would you say the pros of doing this are? So I think the pros are, you know, you have control of your money, right? Um, and if you enjoy investing in finances, uh, you know, early on uh, when I was with the banks and with mutual funds, I knew nothing. And I also really was so focused on my career that I was not interested in managing anything. Uh, but as I'm getting older, um, I've taken a keen interest in, you know, taking my uh, long-term kind of goals into my own hands and trying to learn how to best invest my money and know where my money's allocated. So I think the pro is if you're interested and you have the time, you have only yourself to blame if, you're, if you lose money and uh, you can control kind of your long-term plan uh, a lot more intricately as opposed to having someone manage it, I think. That, that, that was one of the, the keys for me. And then the other side of it for the robo-advisor, I think we've gone into in great detail, which is removing that emotional component. I still really enjoy doing my own DIY, investing through stocks with Interactive. But again, that's a little bit more risky. And I find that uh, there is still a little bit of that emotional component that I'm working on over the years uh, to try to, again, buy whenever there are downturns and, and try to avoid getting affected by seeing just the number uh, in terms of the investments that I've made and really focusing on just picking solid stocks that I know will recover whenever there are downturns in the market. You are interested in it, uh, but some people, one, are not interested in it, and two, they fear the market. So they, they won't do the DIY, they won't do the IB, they don't do the wealth simple, they'll stick to GICs, right? Uh, so that's that's the, the, the flip of the coin. But I would say that the other pro of DIY is that now we have very sophisticated ETFs, as Peter mentioned, that you can buy the entire world and just buy it and sit on your couch, uh, like the couch potato type of strategy. So it's simple, it's easy. Uh, and the costs are are reasonable, right? The fees are reasonable. So I think that's another pro. Peter, any other pros that you can think of of doing DIY yourself? Yeah, I think one of the main pros is 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 the fee structure for sure. There's no doubt that you know with a buy and hold. I mean, my buy and hold equity strategy, you know, paying minimal, let's say, a ten dollar fee per transaction, holding that that equity for you know thirty years is the, one of the lowest cost strategies possible. So that's that's the best part of the strategy. Lowest cost, unfortunately, does not always mean best returns. So um, so I think you have to be cognizant of that because, uh, you know, I, I don't expect to, to significantly beat the market in the long term. I think I'm not uh, smart enough or savvy enough, you know, to, to, to do that. But the low cost structure will will help me in the long run, and if and I think I'm happy with my risk tolerance that I've created. The downsides, 
you know, to let's say having a bit more active personal, you know, DIY investing and not doing the robo advisor side is that is that you you need to watch things uh, more carefully, and it's and it's the time that you spend. You do spend a fair bit of time, you know, depending on how you want to structure things, but you can spend a fair bit of time uh, doing this. I sort of like you know, global geopolitics. So that's stuff that I read anyways. So it interests me, you know, and uh, the time I spend, whether it's, you know, an hour or two, or even sometimes three hours a week is not, you know, is I'm okay with right now, but certainly, uh, but certainly I think there is, uh, that's the biggest con is that the, the amount of time you need to manage it on your own. And I think, again, I, the way I do it, I wouldn't recommend most people do, uh, I think it's riskier, and I think that in general, uh, if you can have, uh, you know, I think the fee structure of robo advisors, you get a lot for the fees that you, the small amount of fees that you pay. Um, you get peace of mind. You get uh, your uh, your time, which is the most important thing of all, uh, and and you get safety. You get safety because they're going to automatically balance. And we talked about take away the emotional investing. So I think I think for most people, that's a great lower cost, not very low cost, but lower cost way to get big bang for your buck. I agree, uh, Peter. I think you mentioned something that I want to bring to and the discussion because we'll talk about this when we talk about managed portfolios. Is that you mentioned low fees doesn't always mean better returns. Uh, and that's important to remember. Uh, low fees is just low fee. Now, if you compound the low fees over years, obviously you're probably going to do a a better return than if you had the exact same product but sitting inside a mutual fund. But buying a ETF or buying an index or following the market is just that you're following the market. You do not beat the market. One may argue that most people don't beat the market. That's fair. That's a fair argument. If you all you have to do is look at SPIVA. SPIVA stands for S&P Active Investment versus uh, Passive Investment. So SPIVA, if you look at that, the data show that you know 86 to 90% of the time, portfolio managers do not beat the index. That's So that's the data out there. But the point that I wanted to make is the point that you made, earlier, Peter, just because we're going low fees doesn't necessarily mean we'll do better. So let's dive into that because both Peter and myself, we do have a portion of our assets in managed funds. And when I say managed fund, I don't necessarily mean mutual funds. I mean, our funds are being managed by someone. And so we do pay a fee for that. So in Peter's example, uh, and in the fee structure of asset under management, he pays 2%. Now, Peter, being a sophisticated investor, he's still willing to pay that 2%. So, Peter, explain to us why, what are the pros uh, in your mind of having your funds managed by a portfolio manager and why you find value in that 2%? Okay, so I think it all goes down to risk reward, right? I mean, and the key word is diversification. We can diversify many ways. and you know, I don't think diversification for the sake of diversification is necessarily important, but I think you should have some diversification in, in your assets. You don't want to have all your money in Shopify, although you'd have done very well of late. That's a very risky way or all your money in Tesla or all your money in GameStop. That would be the least diversified way to go about things. So my money is mostly in, in equities, mostly North American equities. 
And I, I've, I've given some of it to someone that does hedging and IPOs and other things that is way out of my, my comfort zone or things that I do. So they will have returns that will be different from the market. Okay. Whether I hold a basket of stocks on my own or have a robo advisor invest in ETFs, my returns will likely be similar. They'll approximate the market. This person's returns will be probably vastly different from the market. Some months outperform, some months underperform. But that diversification in and of itself reduces risk. Again, you can go crazy with diversification and, and diversify, you know, until you have no risk. But I think that's too much. You can have too much diversification in my mind as well. But some diversification, like meaning with your stocks, having some in Canada, you know, perhaps a bit more in the US and some internationally is a good way to go to, about it. Most, most advisors would recommend that. That's one aspect of diversification. Another aspect is having some in equities and some in fixed income or cash or GICs. That's another aspect. Sahand also has another way. He has some in gold. That's another aspect of diversification. And this is just yet another aspect. Um, you might touch upon other ways to diversify your asset allocation down the road, like private equity and insurance. And those are other ways. I don't think you need to diversify in everything necessarily, but this allows me some diversification in my equity portfolio. So I think you brought up one point that I must stress here you find value in paying 2% to this company or person because this company or person's goal is to be different from the market, hopefully bring you better performance than the market. But the key word that you said was he brings value in doing things that you don't know what to do and you have no comfort in. For example, you mentioned IPO, so initial public offering. So they play into that. They play in those type of sectors. They will hedge, which I don't know how to hedge. I don't even know what a hedge is, and I don't, I don't even know where to begin. So if these people play in hedge funds and they hedge with different tools and vehicles, well, that's something different. Plus, a lot of these portfolio managers will also have access to private equity type of portfolios and products. So you mentioned you could diversify and do yourself and invest in private equity. But if I didn't know how to do that, or didn't know how to access that, well, I, if I wanted to play into that, how can I do it? Well, these portfolio managers will do that. And they'll do that and choose the vehicle and the product based, again, on your goals, risk tolerance, risk capacity, time horizon, and also taking risk into account. So they have access to all those things that me as an individual, one, I may not understand, two, I may not have access, or three, I'm too emotionally attached to be investing in, in it, even though it's for my own good. So that's why you find value in that 2% that you pay to a portfolio manager. Did I get it right, Peter? Yeah, I think that's I think that's about right. So now let's talk about the downside of having that portfolio manager strategy. What do you think in your mind would be a downside? Well, the downside is there's going to be more volatility. Uh, it will not be market returns. Obviously, there is greater fees. And if the if the if their net performance underperforms the market, and then you have to add on expensive fee structure over over the long run, 
then that would be that would lead to long-term negative performance. So those would be the main two downsides is the volatility and the fee structure. And I mean, de- depending on, you know, as long as it's, you know, insured and CDIC and, and you know, legitimate and, and you know that the company's not going bankrupt. I mean, I guess with some small companies, you, there's always that kind of risk. So there's that theoretical risk, depending on who you invest with that, you know, is, is there a company risk to their, you know, are they doing some, some things that are, that are, let's say not kosher or, you know, so there's all those, all those theoretical risks, which are, I think, much smaller. I want to add one more that is uh, emotional investing. Okay. Because as much as I give my asset to a portfolio manager to manage my asset, well, that portfolio manager is also a human being. And that portfolio manager also is subject to the downsides of emotional investing the same way we will be. However, that being said, uh, they are a little bit more adept to it. They probably have more training. They also have a better educated guess to what they want to invest, buy and sell. Hopefully you would expect them to know more than you do. But I think it's it's fair to say that they will also be subject to the same emotional investing that we will be. However, they probably manage better than we will uh, as an individual investor. I would hope that if you're giving your money to a professional fund manager, um, they would be aware of the pitfalls of selling low and buying high. So that's that's sort of basic stuff. So I would say that most would be able to manage that. But but you're right, depending on their mandates, and sometimes they have to meet uh, month-end quotas and they want to lock in gains or or minimize losses. So you're right. You know, they all have their own things. That, but I'm, I'm less worried about professional fund managers, you know, biased towards emotional investing, although it's possible in a smaller operation for sure, than it is for retail investors like us. We are much more prone to that. Absolutely agree. But I, I still believe that we're all human beings and we are all um, emotionally attached. You know, I've learned that um, this the saying, I don't know if you would agree with me or not, Every decision is made emotionally, and then we rationalize it later. Interesting. Interesting. I, I hear your point. I hear your point. And some people are, are more rationally inclined and, you know, uh, uh, than others. But, uh, but I hear you. I hear you. That's a big factor. Okay. So now let's just uh, dive into the gaps. So I want to start with Sahan. For someone who does DIY purely, now knowing what you know now versus three, four years ago, and maybe seeing into the future and seeing what Peter and I do, what do you think are the major gaps in the DIY strategy in your mind currently? Yeah, I, I think uh, you've mentioned this quite a number of times throughout your your podcast, Vu, which is you don't know what you don't know. And uh, I think every time I speak with someone who's been doing it longer, who has more knowledge, who, you know, has had, has made their own mistakes and has learned from them and is wise enough to want to, you know, share those with me. uh, I realize that there's so much that I still do not know. Um, And I think that it's important for, for people to, to understand that because even for me as as again, I'm going through this journey of DIY investing, I'm recognizing that I do need to think even more so about a 
uh, more diversified long-term strategy. And I think that's one where, you know, it'll be sitting down with a financial planner to, to come up with uh, some sort of a long-term plan, uh, both in terms of how I'm allocating my funds and what my long-term goals are in terms of RRSP, retirement, estate planning, insurance, uh, all of those different factors and essentially bringing it all together. Because right now my investing is very focused on the things that we've discussed. Uh, those other things are still somewhat lacking and uh, I'm going to need guidance in order to, to be able to do that. Okay, thank you. I think you brought up a few points that I just want to stress here. DIY investing is really just that. It's about investing. And I think you recognize that you need a financial plan. So what I what I commonly see, and unfortunately, I commonly see this, is people who do DIY. I'm not talking about you, Sahan. But people that I commonly see doing DIY is they really focus on the investment, right? Because that's what DIY is. is, is I'm going to focus on the investment, do it myself. But they forget that you know building financial security is not just about investment it's about the other domains of building financial security and you've mentioned many of them estate planning tax planning risk mitigation wills uh, having an emergency fund um, and insurances right so i i hope that people who do diy recognize and realize that diy is just about investment and so the gaps in DIY is if you don't do what Sahan is planning to do, which is get a proper financial plan, get a, a proper strategy and look into the future, you may pigeon yourself into just investment and thinking that you've done it already. The other part uh, that I wanted to stress was recognizing that there are several things that needs to be uh, that needs to be done in DIY that sometimes you do need help from other people. Spending time to build financial security, and I'm not just talking about investment, I'm talking about financial security. So properly risk mitigate, properly estate planning, properly tax planning is important, and we do need to spend time on that. So I think it, this has all been a great conversation. I've definitely learned a lot just uh, in speaking with you guys today. But, you know, I guess the, the biggest point is know what you don't know, you know, figure out what strategy works for you. I think picking a strategy and, and running with it and investing is probably better than not and avoiding it altogether. So I think it's important to, you know, start looking at uh, what interests you, what kind of risk tolerance you have, and looking at different options that are available to you uh, to try to start investing your money. Um, don't be like me and wait, you know, two, three years and let your money sit and wither away in your bank account uh, before you get started. Uh, I would say that the best time is now. Start doing some reading, research, and uh, figure out what plan would work best for you. Well, Sahan, definitely don't do it the way I did, which was to wait 13 years. <laughs> I think Sahan said it really well. I echo exactly what he said, is that I think it matters less in the, the type you choose than the fact that you start early. 
you have some type of forced monthly savings, whether it's your RSP or TFSA or some pot for, for a down payment you're going to have, but you have forced monthly savings. I think that is the key. Make a budget and say, this is how much I, I want to save. I think I think if, I, if the math is correct, if you can save, I think, $100 a week from the age of 25, I think you end up with a million dollars in, in your TFSA, you know, at, at tax-free when you retire, right? And that's $100 a week. So start saving early. Um, and, uh, and then in terms of your approach, it really depends on you. It depends on you. But I would say for most people, you know, the active asset allocation, rebalancing and all this stuff is complicated. Picking stocks, I would say uh, a simple, low cost kind of robo advisor would work well in terms of and you make those automated payments. I think that's a great way to go, especially early on in your investing career. So I agree with everything you guys said. I just want to point out uh, that you know, if you're doing that type of investment, so the DIY, I think having a robo-advisor in your background to help you with the emotional investing and to help you with rebalancing is absolutely a plus. But it's also just one aspect of financial uh, management. So the other aspects, as you mentioned, Sahan, estate planning, risk mitigation, uh, tax planning are also important. So please don't forget about that. The point that you made, Peter, the best time to invest was yesterday. The second best time is today. So absolutely start early. Don't do what I did, wait 13 years, realize what I did for 13 years, and then start a journey 13 years later and having that opportunity cost. And finally, my last word is you don't know what you don't know. So therefore, go out and learn what you should know. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure and it's been a, a real delight speaking with you. And Peter, I'm, I'm looking at you right now on Zoom and the, the hair that you've lost, but you, you've you gained much more in wisdom. Well, I always learn from you and from Sahan. So it's it's great being colleagues with you. And uh, and uh, maybe we can, maybe if your investments do well, maybe maybe I can afford a, a, you can send some money over my way for a hair transplant. All right. All right. <laughs> Okay, well, there you have it. That was our conversation with Peter and Sahan. I apologize if it was kind of disorganized and more like a dialogue than a structured interview, but I think the audience has gotten a lot of good information from these two guys. So I really want to thank them for being on the show, and I hope that you enjoyed this very, very long podcast. So this is the first time that I've done this type of format where I'm interviewing two people at the same time. So we are now three people talking in a conversation as opposed to a very structured interview. So please give me your feedback. Tell me if you liked it, you didn't like it. And tell me if you want to hear more of this. So email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. And I'm very happy to hear your comments as well about any other financial topics you heard on my podcast or on another podcast. And also, if you have topic ideas for future podcasts, please email me and let me know. For now, bye-bye. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. 
The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.